You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Anyhow, it's so good to be gathering. We're going to be in the book of Genesis here. Uh, We've been going through Genesis all summer from this spring and through the summer. And we have made it to chapter 6 here this morning. Um, Before we get into the sermon, um, you can be turning there. If you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up. We'd love to bring you one. Just slide it up. The ushers have many in the back for you. Um, But one of the announcements, as as Doan was announcing some of the things that are starting off again here in the fall uh, ministry, there's lots of things coming your way. There's going to be prayer nights. There's going to be our small groups, all those kinds of things. Uh, But the one announcement I want to make on behalf of the elders is just that our our live stream uh, is going to be phasing out um, as of actually next week. We're going to be phasing that out. Uh, We put in the live stream for the sake of the pandemic, uh, for all of the regulations and and all of those who were sick as well. And so as things are looking better, um, we are actually going to be closing down that live stream. Uh, That doesn't mean that it's not going to be recorded. Uh, The sermon will be available um, later that evening, if not Monday morning. Um, We're going to have it available on, uh, on the YouTube channel that it usually is on. Uh, And also, we're going to be making sure that our podcast is going to be having that for you as well, especially as small groups kicks off this fall. um, Your small group content this year is going to be pulpit curriculum. And so it's going to be what we're learning here on Sunday and then applied together as the small group. So yes, um, our live stream is going to be phasing out. Well, as we have been studying through the foundations of Genesis, the foundations of our God, the foundations of the universe the foundations of humanity throughout this book so far, one really evident and prominent reality that we have been learning about, especially in the last few chapters here, is learning about the foundation of sin, the origin of sin. And as much as we are in awe of God's glory and his power and Uh, the beauty and perfection that is witnessed throughout his creation that we've seen through Genesis 1 and 2, an overwhelming reality has been very obvious through chapters 3 and 4 and 5 and then on to today, is that where you find mankind, you find sin. That even though everything God created was good and, and even as he created us, the original Uh, To Adam and Eve, everything was very good in just a matter of a few verses and in just mere moments of temptation, the sinister infection of sin was born into this world, born into our hearts, bringing shame, disease, corruption, and death, and then that ultimately spreads to all men because why? Because all sinned. And just as Adam and Eve were commanded to multiply and fill the earth They ultimately multiplied and spread sin. Wherever man is, there is sin. There's this fatal infection of sin. Friends, if you want to talk about an infectious global disease that threatens the good and health of our world, there's nothing more deadly, nothing more destroying, nothing more terminal and detrimental than the pandemic of sin. We pass this down from generation to generation. We're born into it generation to generation, Uh, it's one of a hundred percent infection, and no one escapes its grip, and when it comes to the survival rate, without intervention, the survival rate is zero, 
because in Adam all die. Now, as Moses is writing this book to the people of God, he's writing it to a people who struggle with the infection of sin themselves. And so the Holy Spirit, through Moses, is teaching the people of God to have a firm foundation and understanding of our biggest problem. And our biggest problem is the problem of sin. Friends, we must know the severity of our problem before we can truly know the beauty of the solution. As Thomas Watson said, till sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. And so as we turn to Genesis 6 today, we're going to witness the pervasiveness of sin, we're going to witness the propensity to sin, and we're also going to witness the provision for sin. So let's read Genesis chapter 6. We're just going to be looking at verses 1 to 8 here today. When man began to multiply... On the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we approach your word as we approach you. Rightly, we ought to be approaching you with fear and trembling in awe of your majesty, the beauty of your glory your righteousness, your purity, your holiness. Like Isaiah would say, we are are undone. We are a, a people of unclean lips. And Lord, we confess to you this morning that, uh, that we are sinners, and, and you know that through and through. And we, we thank you that you have revealed to us that we are sinners through and through. And because of that, we now realize and understand for those who are in you and following you who have turned from their sin and trusted you for salvation, we understand that you have revealed to us the, the depravity and the depths of our sin so that we can then worship you in the glory and the splendor of who you are in the beauty of the salvation that you offer to us only through the Son, Jesus Christ. And so as we turn to your word today, we turn to the foundations of, of, of our beginnings. We turn to chapter 6. We really see here how sin has just taken hold and how sin grieves you to your heart. And so we pray that as we focus on this, that it may be a wake-up reality for someone here this morning, and it may just be an awesome reminder for us here to be so thankful, so thankful for your grace as we have been seeing, so, so thankful for your mercy that you made the way through Jesus Christ. And so with your word open before us and your spirit in us, and as we are gathered together rejoicing in who you are, we pray that you would teach us, 
and that you would grow us in the likeness of Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. So we have to know the severity of our problem before we can truly understand and behold the beauty of the solution. Now, as we just read in here in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8, it's, it's pretty clear that things are not going well for humanity. No, in fact, in just 10 generations, things are not going well at all. And as we just read, it's very clear here that God has had enough and that it's already time for him to bring an end to it all. And so the question has to arise in our hearts, why? This is only chapter six. Why has it come to this already? Why so soon? Why, or what has brought the Lord to the place of deciding that enough is enough? Well, as man's first appetite for sin ultimately led to the multiplication of that same appetite for more and more sin to all people, what we see here first in chapter, or in verse verse four of chapter six is that sin is pervasive. Sin is pervasive. Sin spreads like a disease. Sin is not happy to just focus on one heart, one person, to have its fill. No, as sin's desire is contrary to you, as we saw with Cain, sin wants more than just you. Like an infectious disease, it wants to spread broadly and widely. It wants to do the most damage. And so as sin so readily grows within the fertile soil of the human heart, it spreads even further and more wickedly, just like those thorns and those thistles in Adam's curse from Genesis 3. To the point that as sin wickedly multiplies, this is point one, as sin wickedly multiplies, the Lord necessarily intervenes. Now as we turn to this text today, I want you to know that Genesis chapter 6 is often regarded as one of the hardest chapters to understand in the Old Testament. That there are details here that are hard to wrap one's head around. And therefore, it's one of those texts that often has a few different interpretations, especially when you consider it speaking about these, these sons of God marrying the daughters of men and then they're having children with them. What does that mean? Or then you see here also this mentioning of the Nephilim, and then you see the Lord here mentioning that he's shortening man's years to 120. And then even more so, verse 6 speaks about God regretting that he even made man, that he's going to blot him out, and that God is sorry that he made us. So friends, this has been one of those sermon prep weeks that's maybe harder than most. And so your prayers are always needed. Your prayers are always appreciated. Pray for your pastor uh, working through these kinds of things. It's involved much study and prayer for sure. And so today for you, as we walk through this together, it's going to involve some hard work on your part as well. It's going to be one of those sermons with plenty of explanation. And so I'm going to call on you as we believe in expository preaching for you to be an expository listener. That means that you lean in, listen closely. We're going to be working uh, pretty hard through this. As we study Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. But through it, we don't want to miss the point. We want, to, we want to understand why all this matters. And so if you're with me, let's dive in. And we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 here to start. So let's start there again. When man began to multiply 
on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. And then if you jump down to halfway to, to verse halfway through verse 4, you're going to see here as well that it says, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. And this is where we meet our first challenge here in the text, a hard thing to try to understand. And it surrounds this whole idea, this concept here of the sons of God. Now initially, as you may study this, And especially as you're studying this in the recent context of this book and and us knowing about this, this context of a godly offspring that is coming from Eve, the mother of all living, the chapter before is is reading is is revealing that the line of promise is going to come now through Seth. And so it's tempting to believe that these two phrases here, sons of God and daughters of man, is but a continuation of that ongoing contrast between the offspring of Eve and the offspring of Satan. That the sons of God are the descendants of Seth and that they are now marrying the daughters of men, meaning that they are intermarrying with possibly the ungodly line of Cain. And that there was a major problem here because they were intermarrying, that a major problem was erupting before the face of God that it might even correlate to the New Testament uh, of, of believers not being yoked together with unbelievers, right? That that's what's going on here. Now, I think there is still some merit here to that contrast, especially in the context, but then as you look at the phrase here, sons of God, b'nai Elohim, you have to look at the rest of Scripture to see how this title is being used, right? Scripture interprets scripture. And we have to look at what this scripture, who this scripture is specifically being used for. And so again, as scripture interprets scripture, what you find here is that in the Old Testament, this exact phrase, sons of God, is is only used three other times. And we find these three other uses of this phrase in the book of Job. And so as you study how it's used in the book of Job, What we see here is that sons of God is not referring to a godly line of men, but rather something quite different. In Job chapter 1, verse 6, it says this. It says, and it should be up there. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And then if you go to chapter 2, verse 1, it says very similarly, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And so what we see here in the book of Job is is that as we, we already know that Satan is a fallen angel, we've already touched on that, the company that Satan would keep, these sons of God, would be none other than fallen angels. As you study the scriptures, uh, theology of demonology, angelology would, would teach that possibly a third of the angels fell with Satan. We also see further expressed uh, here in Job 38, uh, or chapter 38, verse 7, 
God says to Job as he answers him finally out of the whirlwind, right? He says in chapter 38, verse 4, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. And then if you go down to verse 7, it says, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So as God created the earth and as the angels witnessed his creation, these sons of God who are shouting for joy are not man because man is not created yet. It's obviously angels that is being spoken of here in the text. The sons of God, so it seems, are fallen angels. So to throw a wrench in that idea that the sons of God were merely just godly men, we also have to look to the New Testament and see how the New Testament looks at this as well. And so we look to Peter, and Jude also mentions this, but today we're going to look at Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 to 20, which says this, and this is, this is Peter speaking about in Christ's death, a time between his death and his resurrection. It says in, in 1 Peter 3, 19 to 20, he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey. And so he's speaking about disobedient spiritual beings whom God has locked up but who exactly are there? Well, well, Peter says next, he says, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. And we, so we see him tying these spiritual beings to the time of Noah, which connects to Genesis chapter 6. If you went on to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, he further clarifies that they were in fact angels. 2 Peter 2, 4 to 5, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah. Again, you see him tying these sinning angels to the time of Noah. And so it seems that with Peter, and then if you also go to, to Jude as well, Jude chapter, or Jude verse 6 and 7, you see them speaking about the same thing. And so it seems here, and this is part of this hard work, according to Job and Peter, that these sons of God at the time of Noah are spiritual beings, they are fallen angels who are becoming attracted to the daughters of man and taking them as their wives. And I think one of the hardest things to try to understand here, which really kind of pumps my brakes and my mind most, is that Moses says that they are having sexual relations with these daughters of men. Angels are procreating with humans and they're producing children. And this gives me great pause as I study this this week. And I got to ask the question, Lord, what, what's going on here? What's, what's going on? Angels having babies with humans? Can this really happen? And so as much as I see that literary connection in the Old Testament and the interpretation in the New, angels procreating with humans just doesn't make sense. You know, not that I think it's too far-fetched, but I don't think that it fits within God's good design and creation as we have already studied. Like, especially as you study angelology 101 in the Bible, that although angels in scripture do have male-sounding names like Gabriel and, and Michael, 
They are never presented as beings that have the ability to procreate or even get married. Right? You don't hear of a male or a female angel producing another little angel in Scripture. You never see in Scripture that they even have the biology to do that within themselves. Like, why would they have the biology if it's never being used? Or if they did, how could it go kind of like cross-platform, right? The spiritual with the natural. Now, the whole study of angels is a mystery for sure. There's much that we don't know. Lots that hasn't been revealed to us. But there is one thing that Jesus said that helps me to even further have some questions. And that is in Matthew 22, verse 30 where Jesus is speaking to the Sadducees. They're they're talking about the resurrection. Remember, the Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection. And he's saying to them, for in the resurrection, they, meaning we humans, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like what? But they are like angels in heaven. So friends, according to Christ, angels don't marry, nor are they given to marriage, The design that God gave for humanity to procreate biologically and to become one flesh with one another isn't a part of their story that we can see in Scripture. And so this has caused me to to wonder what's going on here. And so through it all, what I think is going on here, and I may be proved wrong when I get to heaven for sure, but what I think is going on here is that these sons of God are actually demonically influenced men demonically even possessed men. That sin has so infected man's heart and mind that it's so pervasive within ourselves and spreading that we are now being drawn towards the evil. We are being drawn towards the occult. That we are giving ourselves over to being influenced and even possessed by fallen angels. Because as we study the rest of Scripture, demons can possess and even control a person. And so what I submit to you this morning is that these demons, these fallen angels, are controlling these men to carry on the same work of their father, Satan, which is to undermine everything about God, to upend God's good creation and design, and to lead others away from God. And so as the text says here, that the sons of God were attracted and married to the daughters of men, and they're bearing children. I believe Job and Peter are very right to say that they were angels, but that they are angels who are working through the agency of evil men. Which again is just to reveal even further how far we have fallen, which is really the thrust of Genesis chapter 6. That in his sin, man is so willing to run back to the very evil that originally led our first parents astray. This also leads me to understand this next reaction by God in verse 3 better. In verse 3 it says, then the Lord said, right, then, meaning because of that, then the Lord said, my spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. What we see here is that that what's going on here is he's really emphasizing the human involvement that's going on. There's no mention here about the angels. 
It's really speaking about the human agency that is involved in this corrupt copulation. And then God says, his days shall be 120 years. And as we know, just formally, these people were living for 900 years. But now, his days will be 120. And so because of this new level of sin, cohorting with demons, cooperating with demons, immorality with demons, moving on through the generations to follow, God puts his foot down and says, these lifespans are going to be decreased. In fact, as you look at this graph here, you see that post-flood, and then even on down to Abraham, the lifespans, according to Scripture, are being dramatically reduced. As Abraham lives only 175 years, it just keeps going on down from there, to the point where David says in Psalm 90, verse 10, he says, the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. And so as man could multiply greatly with such massive lifespans, so his sin was multiplying so much more broadly, even to the point that they were cohorting and cooperating in evil. And so the natural and necessary thing that God does is to intervene. And he he comes in and he limits. And he reduces his years, shortening his lifespan, right? Less years, less damage. And we can see why the Lord does that in verse 4. As it says, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. And so it seems this demonic influence was resulting in the production of very powerful people known to the world as the Nephilim. And so the Nephilim, who are they? Well, it's interesting to see that this title here, Nephilim, these people are mentioned here sandwiched between the sons of God marrying and the sons of God having children. Now, Nephilim, if you may notice, probably has a footnote in your Bible pointing out to that this word is understood in the Hebrew as giant. In fact, if you look at the Hebrew structure of the word, it also means fallen ones. The root is to fall, right? Now, there are only two places that mention Nephilim in all of Scripture, this one here in Genesis, but also in Numbers 13.33. In the Numbers case, it reveals more about what Nephilim means, revealing that they were, in fact, large, mighty people. If you remember the story of Moses sending out spies into the promised land, they came back to him and they reported in Numbers 13, 33, and they said, and, they, and there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. And so as Nephilim was understood to the Hebrew people to mean giants, And as these spies say that they they seemed like grasshoppers in comparison to them, we can expect that the Nephilim surely means giant-like people. Now, I'm not saying giants like you may be thinking, right, from your nursery rhymes. What's that old cartoon, Mickey and the Giant? 
or the jolly green giant on your bag of peas. But giant in the sense of being larger than normal. Giant more in the Goliath-like sense. Where if you know about 1 Samuel 17, we are told of an extremely large man. He's a man that stood six cubits and a span. Meaning that he was anywhere between 7 foot 10 or maybe even up to 9 foot 6. Depending on how you measure a cubit. He was a man whose armor weighed about 125 pounds of bronze. He was a, a giant in comparison to the average height of men at that time, which is about five foot five, they discover from archaeology. Now, in my family, our family is pretty tall people on my dad's side. I'm actually one of the shorter ones. My grandfather was six foot five, my uncle was six three. And uh, my cousin Danny, we call him Big Danny, he's six foot five, or sorry, six foot seven. But nine foot six, that's something else. Like, what has that guy been eating? I mean, the tallest guy, and I've got a picture of the tallest guy in the Guinness Book of Records, was Robert Wadlow. He stood at eight foot 11, but nine foot six. Now, it's one of those things to have a rare case of giantism, which is still around today, but the scriptures here are, are calling these men Nephilim, in the plural. They're giants. The, the scriptures is calling them a mighty men who were of old. They were the men of renown. And so whatever's going on here, it seems that this evil influence of this supernatural power, this influence of these fallen angels, intermixing with man, it's, it's resulting in an extremely large and powerful mighty men, a men of renown. Meaning that they were a powerful force to reckon with. To which God then responds by limiting the age of man. In order to quash it, in order to limit the effect and the spread of his power and evil. And so just in these first Four verses, there's a lot to take in here, I know that. And it's a much debated text. But as we don't want to lose, don't want to miss the forest for the trees, the main overarching point that we're seeing here is this. As sin wickedly multiplies, the Lord necessarily intervenes. And it's very clearly revealed that there's some kind of demonic work going on here. Human agency is coordinating, cooperating with it. It's resulting in extraordinary things going on. Sin is multiplying to the point that God's mercy towards mankind needs an adjustment. And so he intervenes. He limits their lifespans because he is God and he is ultimately in control of all. Friends, sin is so pervasive. Sin just multiplies so fast. Like when you look upon our world today, is there anywhere in this world that is not touched by sin? Is there anywhere in this world where there is not suffering? And is there power going on behind the scenes that are at work to undermine the plan of God? Like you know, our culture today often wants to glorify the indigenous cultures of the world, like those in the furthest reaches of the jungle or the mountains, or even here with our First Nations, touting that 
If we could only live like they did, one with the world, at peace with the universe, we would be better off. Well, let me tell you, as much as certain cultures may be untouched by civilization or modernity, they're, they're not untouched by sin. They're not untouched by evil. No, sin has been so pervasive since day one that wherever man goes, their sin goes. There is not a people or a culture in this world that is not infected with sin just as the rest of the world is. Just study the tribes of the indigenous and the native around this world. Study how they fought with each other. Study how they murdered each other, just like Cain. Go study child sacrifice in Uganda where my friend Peter ministers. Right? How witch doctors are murdering children for good luck. It's horrific. It's demonic. Go study the ancient civilized culture of the Mayan people who would so brutally and continually sacrifice their people on their temples in order to satisfy their gods. Go study how the perverted ancient cults had temple prostitution. Go study how even the first nation culture here in Canada, which is my heritage, study how they are so, they have been and are still so deeply entrenched within the spiritual world, playing around with darkness which would be the same demonic influence we see right here in the sons of God. Friends, the pervasiveness of sin all around us is everywhere. Ephesians 6.12 reminds us, right? For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Friends, when man becomes the agency through which Satan and his demons work, evil just multiplies so fast, so further, so much more wider that more and more people are deceived, more and more people are blinded, and Satan is sowing his seed everywhere. So friends, to disobey God is one thing, but to align yourself with demonic influence is another. So Genesis 6 is a reminder that as sin is so pervasive, God must intervene, and he does so. Now, as the text goes on, it's going to reveal to us as well the propensity of sin. That as evil thoroughly corrupts, the Lord grievously judges. And so on the heels here of God limiting man's years, his lifespan, verse 5 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So just 10 generations, friends. As you look back at that timeline again to those genealogies, it's just been 10 generations. It's just been about 1,000 years. Sin has spread so far and has saturated us so deeply that as God looks upon mankind, what does he see? He sees that mankind is thoroughly wicked, that mankind is evil through and through, that his every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil, he says, only evil continually. So not just sinful in breadth, but sinful in depth. Our sin has so spread to the outer corners of the universe, it's also saturated the deepest places within who we are. To the point that as God looks upon man at this time, 
he has nothing good to say about man. In fact, verse 6, he says, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth, and it grieved him to his heart. Right? Just a thousand years. We had become so wicked, so evil, that the Lord regretted even making us, that we're grieving him to his very heart. Friends, if you ever thought that your sin only affects you or maybe your sin affects others, you have to think again. No, the reality we see here in our text is that sin truly affects God. Sin affects the very heart of God. And it says here that it grieves him to his heart. Friends, God is not unaffected. God is not a brick wall when it comes to us and our sin. He's not a block of wood like the fake idols of the day. No, God has emotions. God loves his creation. And he has a very special covenant love for his people. But when he sees the world and he sees even his people going after Satan, going the way of sin, being thoroughly sinful, totally depraved, as we see here, it moves his heart. It brings him sorrow. It brings him grief. It pains him. Now we know that God doesn't have a physical heart. God is spirit. This is speaking about his heart in an anthropomorphic sense where the, the human author is using our attributes to speak about the character and heavenly attributes of God. And so it's not a physical heart that Moses is talking about here, but rather it's an expression of the Jewish understanding that the heart is the very center of emotions, that those reside within the heart. So God's heart, right, meaning God's emotions, are deeply affected by our sin. Again, friends, you never sin in isolation. God always sees. And when he sees it, it affects him. So don't think otherwise. You can't hide from him. Especially as God looks at how much his creation has progressed, right? With all the cities and the culture, we see that through the line of Cain already. As mankind is taking dominion over the earth without him, and as much as the world would want to praise that, and as much as we might want to even praise what's going on in our world, God looks upon the heart, and he sees the sin, and it grieves him to his very core, to the point that he says that he regrets even making us. Maybe if you have a New American Standard Bible, you see that it says, the Lord was sorry that he made man. Almost to the point of sounding as if God is saying that what he did was a big mistake. That what he did wasn't good. That if he could, he would take it all back. Meaning that what it sounds like here, especially in our regular understanding of the word regret, that in the beginning, God is saying here, maybe I shouldn't have created man. That even though it was very good, now it's so bad I shouldn't have done it. I mean, we're tempted to think that about God, but what's going on here? Does this mean that God really thinks that what he did was wrong? That he shouldn't have created us at all? Does he wish he could take it all back? Well, that's what it seems 
especially with what he plans to do next in verse seven. It says, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. Again, it says, for I am sorry that I have made them. He is sorry that he made them. The verb to blot out here literally means to take a dish and to wipe it clean into the trash, to scrape off the leftovers and throw it in the garbage. That we, what we see here is God wants to take it all and he wants to send it to the dump. Because of what? Because of sinful man. All the animals, all the creeping things of the birds in the heavens, everything that man has touched, he wants it all to be destroyed because he regrets making it. Because he's grieved. Because he's sorry that he ever made it. Friends, our sin affects God to the very core. And it thoroughly disturbs him. So this is serious stuff. We're getting insight into the heart of God here. That the pervasiveness of our sin and our propensity to sin has gone too far. That as our wickedness was so great on the earth and that the intentions of the thoughts of our hearts are only evil continually, that there is no place that God looks upon his creation where sin has not spread and saturated and because of that, God is saying, I'm gonna wipe man clean from the surface of the earth and all the animals and everything else is gonna go with it. Why? Because he is sorry that he has made them. Now again, this whole idea of God regretting and being sorry that he created man puts us in a bit of a quandary. I mean, isn't our God supposed to be perfect? Isn't God always right? Aren't God's plans always the perfect plan according to his perfect will? Are we saying here that God can make mistakes? Are we saying that he really thinks he shouldn't have made us in the beginning, that he regrets it all? I thought the Bible says that God never changes his mind. And I'll say, yes, that's what the Bible teaches. Malachi 3.6, the Lord does not change. So you, O descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Similarly, in James chapter 1, verse 17, tells us every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. Or Numbers 23, 19 is very clear. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Friends, the Bible is loud and clear. That yes, what God sets forth, God does. And that he is the all-knowing God, who knows the beginning from the end, and what he wills does happen, and that what he does is always good and right and true. But friends, as all of that is true, what we need to see here again is how God is responding to our sin. It affects him so much that he acts. Right? Not that he's surprised by it. Not that he doesn't know that this is how it's going to roll out. He does. But what he's saying here is that it's affecting him. In fact, this language of regret and sorrow, again, is anthropomorphic. It's a way to speak about the infinite heart of God with finite human language. 
For God to regret, is, is it similar to how we regret or is it dissimilar to how we regret? We see this language of regret being used here as well when it comes to Saul, King Saul, in 1 Samuel 15, 11. God says, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Right, that all, although Saul was the first king and although God's spirit was once at work within him, now God regrets even making him. Very similar language. Again, friends, we have to understand this is the heart of God here. He's feeling sorrow over the sin. He feels pain because of the sin, because Saul has not followed God or performed his commandments according to God's ways. And again, God is not surprised at this. God knows that it was going to roll out this way. In fact, it is God who allows it to take place. But that no less means it doesn't affect him. But again, remember, for God to regret is infinitely different than we regret. He regrets while also being the God of all knowledge, the God of all power. He knows the beginning from the end. In fact, in 1 Samuel 15, if you go down to verse 29, it says very clearly in God's response to Saul, it says, and also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Or Numbers 23, 19, that says, God is not a man that he should lie, or the son of man that he should change his mind. And so, friends, you have to see that as much as God reveals here about himself and his heart, we have to balance all of this with his perfect will, his perfect power, even like the story in Exodus 32, where, God, where it says that God relented of the disaster he was going to bring upon his people. It all needs to be balanced with that. What God is saying here is that this sin affects him to the point that he has to do something within his infinite knowledge and power. And so in our case here in Genesis 6, we're clearly seeing how God feels. And then we're introduced to what God is about to do. That he, according to his perfect will and plan for creation, is to bring worldwide judgment. And he's going to do that through a global flood in order that he will blot out the man and he will blot out the animals and the creeping things and the birds from the face of the earth because man's propensity for evil is so saturated within us. So friends, as evil thoroughly corrupts, the Lord grievously judges. And so again, as we look out onto our world and we even look deep within our own hearts, we see that even after the flood, up to this very day, sin is spreading and sin is saturating. Friends, things are not getting better here. They're getting worse. And that's biblical. As we may look out in desperation and grief and even at times disgust about the world and even ourselves and our own bents as well, that is evil thoroughly corrupts, we have to remember how much it grieves God to the core. As God is so in, in intimately and intensely involved in sustaining the creation right now, our sin 
The world's sin affects him, and it pains him. As he sees the murder, as he sees the rape, as he sees the war, as he sees the, injust uh, the injustice, as he sees cooperation going on with evil, you name it, he sees the pervasiveness and the propensity for sin, and friends, he has a day coming. He has a day coming when it is gonna finally and fully be ended. Friends, when you think about that, it should strike either fear or comfort. It should strike either urgency or hope. Friends, as our God is a just and righteous God, as sin so is infected our hearts and the world, those who don't see the darkness of their sin, those who don't see how our sin grieves God, those who don't understand how depraved they are and how desperate they are in need of salvation, right? there's, there's people that, that willingly join the forces of, of darkness to plot against the Lord. For them, there is a horrific day coming. As the scriptures say, Hebrews 10 13, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. For those who go their whole lives without truly seeing God for who he is and repenting and believing according to the scriptures, regardless of, much, of how much they want to try to earn his favor or do good, friends, if we don't recognize our depravity, our sin, if we don't see our need, and cry out to him in faith and repentance, if we just continue balling up our fist and going our own way towards sin and evil, the judgment of God is coming for you. It's coming. The Bible says in Romans 2.5, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. And yes, the Lord flooded the entire earth. As we're going to learn in the weeks to come, yes, all the animals and the birds and the creeping things and mankind was destroyed with one great big devastating display of God's wrath and fury because of his grief over us. Yes, this happens once, but since that day, God has been holding back. God has been holding back his judgment. But judgment day is coming. And it's coming in God's perfect timing when he says enough is enough. He already knows the day and the hour, but we don't. And I would say that we often don't act like we know that it's coming. We're so busy with life. We're so occupied by the things of this world. We're so given of ourselves over to sin and more sin. Jesus warned us of our complacency and Matthew 24, 37, he says, For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. So friends, the connection of Genesis 6 to today is that it's just like it was back then. Judgment is coming. 
And that should strike fear if you don't know him as your savior. Again, as Jesus says in Luke 12, 5, he says, but I will warn you whom to fear. Jesus is saying you should fear somebody. Who does he say to fear? He says, fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. You know, friends, a lot of people try to make fun of hell and brimstone preaching. It's the truth of the scriptures. We love to think about Jesus loving us, and that is so true, but he loves us enough to tell us the truth. Friends, there is a day coming, and it's coming soon. It's all going to come to an end, and Christ is going to return as the judge of the living and the dead. As horrific as the flood was in Noah's day, Jesus is said to be coming back with eyes of fire, with a sword coming out of his mouth. He's going to judge the wicked. He's going to judge the unrepentant, and he's going to throw the thoroughly wicked into the lake of fire. That's the truth. As Moses is recalling the threat of the flood and man's propensity to sin, he wants his people, he wants his own sinful people to see the eternal, serious nature of their sin. So as evil thoroughly corrupts, the Lord grievously judges. Now as it all seems lost, that after ten generations and a thousand years, God has had enough. As we have seen here, the way that the sin of the world has affected God's heart and how he promises to blot it out. If this section ended here, what a sad, depressing story the Bible would be. What a sad and depressing depiction of God that would be. That it all would end right here. Like, what would be the point? What about the promise that God had in Genesis 3.15 that he's going to send a head crusher for, for the serpent? What about this line of Seth who was calling upon the name of the Lord? What about the very words from Lamech just last week in Genesis 5.29 who was prophetically hoping in his own son? Remember he said, this one, Noah, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from our painful toil of our hands. What about that? Well, that's why the Holy Spirit has verse, or, um, the last verse here in chapter 6, verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, the son of Lamech, the one to which he said, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. So friends, as much as our sin is so pervasive, as much as we are so thoroughly wicked, God here continues his sovereign plan to provide the way of salvation. And so that's the provision for sin, right? As hope fully fades, the Lord graciously provides. Yes, God is sorry that he has made them, but Noah had favor. Now we're gonna learn much about Noah and, and why it's said that he has favor next week, right? As Noah is said to be a righteous man, one who was blameless in his generation. But as this section just closes with the reality that Moses has favor with God, friends, what we're seeing here is grace. This is all of grace. 
This is God acting despite our wickedness. This is God pursuing despite our overwhelming evil, like Adam and Eve being pursued in the garden and God coming and seeking them and covering their sins and then giving the promise of a serpent crusher. We see this, this, this plan unfolding more and more. There was a provision of a third son, right? Seth. The promise is going to flow through Seth. That's all grace. And then we're going to see grace even clearer right here. As God deems to wipe humanity from the face of the earth and bring salvation through one man, the same grace points forward to final grace. As the same line of promise would one day produce the ultimate favored one, Jesus Christ, the very Son of God, who came to take the overwhelming flood of judgment for us to absorb all of the wrath of God upon us for our sin. He took it upon himself as he hung upon that cross because of the pervasiveness of our sin, because of the propensity of our sin. That we were so utterly and totally depraved that Christ's life was shortened, that he suffered the grievous judgment of God for us as the only, final, perfect provision for our sin. Friends, that was the only way. That was the plan that God had before he even created the earth. As we just sung the song, Your Grace, we were singing about the power of your grace, God. There's nothing we could earn, nothing we deserve, but it's his grace. And so as we close out here today, The question is, is do you see the pervasiveness of your sin? Do you see the propensity to sin? And even more than that, do you see how it grieves God? If you remember David crying out in Psalm 51 over his sin with Bathsheba, he was crying out to God, I have sinned against you, God, and you only. He understands that it grieves God first. And so with that, do you see what you deserve for your sin? But most of all, do you see the provision for your sin? That it came by grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for gathering us. We thank you for your word. That your word is clear, but that no less means that it's easy at times to study. And so we pray that as we looked at even some difficult things, that we would see uh, the, the, the weaving of your grace, the promise of Jesus Christ working itself out right from the very beginning. And it's becoming more and more clear in the person of Noah in our text. And as we continue to study how you're going to judge the world and you're going to bring this flood again, that you would just remind us, remind us of our our pervasiveness of sin, our propensity to sin, but that you provided the way, the the provision through Jesus Christ alone. As we go out into this week and as we're reminded of the darkness of this world, would you send us into people's lives? Would we be just vehicles of that grace, sharing the goodness and the glory of Jesus Christ, sharing the bad news that apart from Christ, they are without hope but that we have the hope and it's been revealed to us through the scriptures by the power of your Holy Spirit and that those in this world can turn. They're not too far gone 
they can turn to Jesus Christ and believe and be saved from their sin. We pray that you would continue to be glorified as we sing to you now.